This is episode 551 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Living the Christian life is hard, even for the most committed. Why? Because it's a life of surrender, of giving all to Him and allowing Him to live His life through us. And when we attempt that, our flesh, or our independence, screams in rebellion. There is no way to live the life of faith in the flesh. There's no way to manifest the fruits of the Spirit without the Spirit. Or, when attacked unjustly, there's no way you can turn the other cheek out of sheer determination and the force of your will. It can't be done long-term, no matter how hard you try. After all, the spirit and the flesh are at war with each other, and only one can win. Josiah was made king of Israel at the age of eight. He must have been taught properly, because by the time he was a young man, age 20, he took great and unpopular strides to right the wrongs committed by previous kings and approved by the people. Let me read to you just Second Chronicles 34, just two verses. It says, For the eighth year of his reign, he was now 16, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his fathers. And in the twelfth year, he was now 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars which were above them he cut down, and the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images he broke in pieces, and he made dust of them and scattered them on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priest on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. Wow, not bad for a man in his early 20s who had never read a single word of Scripture and did not know God personally. That's right. He was serving God the best he knew how with no personal knowledge of God whom he was serving, kind of like many in the church today. But when they brought to him the word of God found in the house of the Lord, everything changed. Totally. Now Josiah served the God he knew in the ways God commands. How about you? Do you follow him out of intimacy or out of duty? Something to think about, wouldn't you agree? And if so, keep listening as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Amen. We're in 2 Kings chapter 22. We're going to be looking at a a young kid named Josiah. Not this guy, but you could learn a lot from this. This is your namesake. My namesake was Stephen, who was stoned. That that doesn't go well. But anyway, yours is Josiah, which is much, much better. Um, Let me tell you um, what's happened to me. And this has been going on for quite a while. And I have hesitated to share it with you because I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just me. It wasn't something of the flesh. It wasn't something that seemed reasonable, but it was something that was, uh, that was truly real. I came to a couple, couple conclusions. One conclusion, and we all struggle with this, is everything we learn, we pass through a filter. We pass through an American filter. We pass through an entrepreneurial filter. We pass through a capitalistic filter. We pass through a filter of implied freedom that we have in our nation. We pass through a racial filter or a socioeconomic filter. Or we, just, we just have some sincerely held convictions that we know are true. And so therefore, everything we read in Scripture that maybe contradicts our sincerely held convictions, we have a choice between accepting what the Word says 
or in abandoning what we believe or what we've come to believe or what we feel comfortable believing or rejecting what we believe and embracing him in totality. Most of us don't. Most of us somehow try to water down the word to the point that it kind of fits within what we feel comfortable with. You know, when it talks about forgiving, that unless I forgive my greatest enemy who's never asked me for forgiveness, who I loathe, I, God won't hear my prayers and won't forgive me. No, no, that, that, that doesn't really mean what it says because that puts me in a horrible position. So therefore, I either don't read those passages, I don't embrace those passages, or I try to convince myself that it means something different. All of us go through this mental gymnastic of somehow thinking God is okay with lukewarmness. God is okay with me wearing a t-shirt that has some stupid commercial on it, that the words are twisted so it sounds like Jesus, and that's okay. That I put this little sticker on my car to let everybody know I'm allegedly a Christian, but then live just like the world, and that's okay. That God says he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, but I live in between those two areas, and that's okay. Because God is just satisfied with just having me. He's thrilled to have me as a believer because I'm really helping out his tribe here, and so therefore I can kind of take and leave the, the, uh, the messages and the truths in Scripture whether I want to or not. But what happens when all that changes? What happens if Jesus showed up one day in um, your living room and started talking to you, and you found out that, you know, uh, um, what everybody in the Scripture does whenever Jesus shows up is different than what I've ever seen anybody do today. You'll notice that every time God shows up, people hit the floor. People are just on their face before the Lord, and they're on their face, you know, of people far more spiritual than we are, far more holy than we are. Some of the old prophets just fall down before God and say, I'm a sinful man, depart from me, and I'm a man of unclean lips. And, and yet we have a tendency, I have a tendency, of taking him for granted. Oh, he's not like that anymore. He's, he's not the Mount Sinai God with thunder and lightning and quaking and fear. He's just the good old buddy God. He's the high five God, fist bump God that I can kind of take or leave at my leisure and I've grown up in a society like that. I've grown up in church that embraces that. I've grown up in the lukewarm Laodicean age that he's okay with my sin because once I get my heaven card stamped, I can do whatever I want because any other message that's preached thins a crowd and church today isn't about thinning crowds. It's about getting larger. What happens when you realize that what you thought was true is not true? And what happens when you finally realize that when he gives a command, that's a command. That's not a suggestion. It's a command. It's like master to slave, father to son in a, in a perfect family. It is a command, military general to a private. And then we realize that when we begin to see God for who he is versus who we have dumbed him down to be, Everything changes. Everything changes. I was reading 2 Kings. I'm rolling this over in my mind, and I'm asking the Lord when he wants me to share 
three truths I'm going to share with you at the end of this that uh, if you will embrace, they will literally change your life. It'll make it more difficult, I promise you that, in the flesh, but it'll radically change your life. And I'm reading through this, and I find out that exactly what happened to me, exactly what I'm hoping will happen to you, happened to Josiah. I mean, he's this young king. He, um, he has an account uh, in two places in Scripture. He's the 15th king of Israel. He's the last good king before the captivity. He uh, ruled for 31 years. He died at the age of 48. He was a young man. We know him because he was only eight years old when he became king. If you'll look at 2 Kings chapter 22, chapter 21 deals with Manasseh, who's the worst king ever. It's like Freddy Krueger of the kings of Israel. And after Manasseh, they had a king named Ammon. And of course, he was assassinated after two years. And there's all these reasons why that happened. So they took this young boy because they figured he could bring reforms kind of like Hezekiah, and they made him king. He's eight years old. Come on, eight years old. I figured that the powers to be figured they could manipulate him. They could kind of do what is right. And we find it's, his life is recorded in two places, 2 Kings 22 and 23, and 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. And those two uh, accounts give different pictures of him. In other words, the, the, you have Josiah when he's born, and he becomes king when he's eight years old, and he does a whole lot of things until all of a sudden the word of God is discovered and is presented to him, and all of a sudden he realizes, wow, I can't believe that this is the real the word of God. And so then he does a whole lot of other things, positive in nature, and then, um, and then has his massive Passover that they haven't had for generations, and then, of course, he dies. And so in 2 Kings what you have is you have him becoming king and then all of a sudden him finding the word of God and then the events that took place after that, the changes that took place in his life except the Passover. And in Second Chronicles, you have him as eight years old becoming king. The stuff he did before he even knew about the, the word of God, the word of God coming, and then afterwards it focuses on the Passover. So it's almost like you have to read both accounts together to understand the totality of his life. So what I'm going to do is use the Second Kings passage, and I'm going to throw a couple other verses in from Second Chronicles, and I'll have those behind you to give you the whole picture of this young guy. So, by the way, eight-year-old eight year kids today are different than eight-year-old people back then. Uh, and when you were 12 or 13 years old, back in the time of uh, uh, the Old Testament, you were a man. I mean, women got married when they were 13 or 14 years old. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was probably 13 or 14 years old when, uh, when she gave birth to our Lord. And so this isn't like the video-playing, brain-dead kind of young people we have today. No offense, young people. Well, we were kind of like that, weren't we? Of course not. Anyway, but, but anyway, they, they were different then. He's a little bit more wise, a little bit more older. Life was more difficult. And so here's what it says. We'll begin in 2 Kings chapter 22. It says, Josiah, whose name means God healed in the Hebrew, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of, and it lists a bunch of names here, and it kind of sums it up in verse number two. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left hand. He was focused on God, so much so that if you look at 
chapter 23, verse 25, it kind of tells you how much he was focused. This is a summary of his life. It says, now before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. Back to uh, chapter 22. Josiah is eight years old. It says he did what is right in the sight of the Lord, walked in all the ways of his father David, did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left hand. Well, I want to know how he did this. He's at age eight. I mean, what happened to him? What made him the person that he became? And we go to 2 Chronicles to find that out. 2 Chronicles chapter uh, 34, verse 2 says this about this event we're reading. It says, from the eighth year of his reign, for in the eighth year of his reign, he's now 16 years old, right in the middle of girls and, and video games and getting my driver's license in my car and having fun and mom, you're stupid and all that 16-year-old stuff. From, for the, in the eighth year of his reign, when he was 16 years old, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Something happened inside of him, and he realized, I want more out of life than, than just what everybody else is doing. I have a passionate desire to seek after God. He's 16 years old now. And in the 12th year, when he's now 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. They broke down the altars of the Baal in his presence. I want to see this happen. And the incense altars were above them. He cut down and the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images he broke in pieces. And he made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem and the entire outlining providence of Judah. Just so that you'll know. There's been a history of evil kings. It really began with Solomon giving in to the uh, whims of his, uh, his wives. And so what they had done is in the temple of God, in Solomon's temple, they had, they had really kind of desecrated it. It was needing bad repair. They had built pagan altars over here and pagan altars over there. There were more pagan altars in Jerusalem than there were uh, Jewish altars at that time. They had built these altars in the on the Mount of Olives, where, as I've showed you before, especially on Tuesday night, they have that graveyard that is there. And all of a sudden, this young man says, no, I, I want to do what is right. I'm not sure what is right, but I know this is wrong. And so therefore, as, as, as a young man who's 12 and then 20 years old, he's going out commanding those people to destroy the pagan religious system of his day. People hated him. The establishment, the elite, the deep state, if you want to call it, wanted to kill him. But nevertheless, I'm going to do what is right. I'm serving the Lord to the best of my ability. I'm, I'm trying to do what I thought is right and following the Lord with my whole heart. But I didn't know what you really command. I mean, this seems reasonable to me. And so therefore, I see an evil. I'm trying to correct an evil, but I don't have an intimate relationship with you. I don't really know your word. I've never read one verse of the Bible. I'm just believing based on what other people have told me or what seems intuitively right and wrong. And I'm acting on that, trying to serve the Lord with limited knowledge, with my whole heart. And he did this for six years doing what was right, 
but doing it without an intimate knowledge of God. And then all of a sudden, he got a chance to see something that changed everything. Everything. Verse 3. I'm not going to read all this, but what happens is he's decided now that he wants to repair the temple. So they've collected taxes from everybody, and they've got Hilkiah and a, a scribe and a couple other people, and we've got these gifted artisans that are out there trying to, to, to get rid of all the pagan, satanic pentagram symbols that are in God's house and, and try to repair the stuff that the previous kings and the culture had just trampled on. And so there's this process going on, and it talks about it over the next couple verses where they're going in there and they're removing some of this stuff out of the temple and they're searching and all of a sudden, have to understand Manasseh, the most evil king, commanded that all copies of the scripture be destroyed. But obviously there was one left because it says in verse number eight, then Hilkiah said to the, the priest, said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. That's the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of Moses. This isn't the Psalms or Proverbs. This isn't the New Testament, obviously. This is the part that we struggle with trying to read. It's the do's and don'ts and the commands. And Hilkiah, verse 8, gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Scholars believe what he probably did is got fixated on Deuteronomy 28 through 30. I don't know if you've ever read those passages, but you ought to. It's three chapters of blessings and curses. If you do this, I will do this, says God, and it's just bountiful blessing. But if you don't obey me, if you don't revere me, if you follow other gods, if you don't obey me, then I will do this. I'll do the opposite of what my blessings are, and I will bring upon you all the curses that I brought upon Egypt. It is sobering. It is painful to read. And if you read it, you go, wow, uh, I'm not doing most of the stuff it talks about in here, but, oh, God doesn't do that today because just God is a God of love and he's not a God of righteousness or holiness. And that's the Old Testament and we live in the New Testament, so I'm just kind of kind of ignore that. Most likely what happened is um, the, these, this priest read this and he read that passage and he was stunned. So he went to the king the King Josiah now, who is trying to serve the Lord the best he knows how in the flesh, doing what he thinks he should be doing. And by the way, what he's doing was correct. And he, in verse number 10, it said, then Shaphan the scribe showed it to the king, this book that we found, and said, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. The whole thing? Yeah, that's exactly what it says. The Genesis account, the Leviticus account, the, the mighty hand in, in, in which God in Exodus moved them out of Egypt, the history of Israel. And here is this king trying to serve the Lord with everything he has, hearing the unadulterated word of God for the first time. It's not up to his interpretation. It's not up to what he thinks he needs to read. He's reading this and he's overwhelmed. Verse 11, now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. He lamented. Oh my gosh. I mean, his breath was taken away. He was filled with fear and dread and anguish. When we first met here as a church um, 
eight, 10, 12 years ago, I remember that we had a discussion one Sunday. Vic was sitting like right where you were, having a discussion one Sunday. And I, I made an offhanded comment and I said, um, man, it seems like every time you get close to God, he seems to raise the bar. He seems to like raise the standard a little bit higher. And I remember Vic saying, no, God doesn't raise the bar. God reveals to us where that bar is. It's always been that high. I'll never forget that. It was like, yes, it's, you know, these blinders, can, that's exactly what he does. And, and all of a sudden, King Josiah realized, oh my gosh, this is God Almighty we're talking about here. And I'm reading the Deuteronomy passage, and I'm reading what's required about the worship. I'm reading about the Passover. We haven't even celebrated a Passover. They haven't celebrated a Passover, and who knows how long, because we're not focused on serving God anymore. We're focused on somehow doing it our own way. Verse 12, then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and all these other people saying, listen, I need to know, I need to know if, if what I'm doing is right or wrong. I need to know uh, who this God is. I need to have an intimate relationship with me, with him. And back then, since the Holy Spirit didn't live in them like he does now, what they would do is they would go to these prophets or prophetesses, and they would inquire of them, and they, of course, would talk to the Lord, and the Lord would talk to them and give them a message back for the king, and that's exactly what he did. And here's the message. Verse 15 says, then, this is a prophetess, said to them, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, ooh, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, including the king. All the words of the book in which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger. With all the works of their hands, therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. He's talking about the Babylonian captivity. But as for the king of Judah has sent you to inquire of the Lord, but as of Josiah... In this manner you shall speak to him. This is personal to him. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words in which you've heard, because your heart was tender, it means soft, gentle, primarily it means submissive, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, that you, um, in your mind, reduced in rank. He's everything and I'm nothing. That you subdued yourself, became lowly, you bowed to the God to the Lord, because you have, you, your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against his inhabitants, that, I would become a de- that they would become a desolation and a curse, and that you tore your clothes and wept. When is the last time you wept over your sin or the sins of your nation? or the sins of our culture, or the sins of your family, or the fact that you're not close to the Lord, or the fact that we've, you know, are satisfied being an eight or a six on a, on a scale of one to ten. And when is the last time we wept because we've broken his heart by placing something other than him in the center of our life? He wept. He tore his clothes, which is a what the Jews did back then to show great anger, which is like, oh, I just ripped their clothes, their, their cloak off, and you know, I'm just overwhelmed with grief and anguish, and I wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord, 
And what we're expecting is God will stay his hand. God will be gracious, but he's not. He's gracious to Josiah, but he's not gracious about his wrath. His wrath always comes. Verse 20, Surely therefore I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and you shall not see all the calamity which I will bring upon their place. And so they brought word back to the king. What would you do? What would you do? It's like a wake-up call. It's like, you know, having this dream and you wake up and it's almost like a vision and you're standing there before the Lord and the Lord tells you, I'm not satisfied with you. Or one of those deals, you hear the stories where someone's on the operating, operating table and maybe something goes bad and have one of these out-of-body experiences. Have you read about those? You know, and you find yourself hovering over the hospital room and then taken somewhere to this beautiful landscape and, you know, there's trees or mountains or whatever it is and there's this voice and this great light in front of you. I mean, this happens to a lot of people and, and all you want to do is be engulfed in this love and the, the person looks at you and says, you know, your works are not complete in me and, and you go back on earth and you've been realized as your whole life is played in front of you, all your failures and all the petty things that you put in front of the eternal and then all of a sudden you realize that, oh, man, it really means nothing. I can't believe that. And then you come back to yourself miraculously back in your body, and God heals you, and you're alive again, and you do the same thing you did before, have the same gods in your life you had before. And it doesn't really happen. And it didn't happen to Josiah either. All of a sudden, Josiah realized, I've read God's word. I see exactly what it says. And yes, I'm trying to serve into the best of my ability, not knowing what he says, but it's far more important for me to get it right in his eyes than it is to do what seems acceptable in my eyes. Verse 23, um, chapter 23, verse 1. What happens? Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. I want all the leaders that are here, the people that should have known better. Some of these elders are complicit in what had happened with the earlier kings. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. Wow. The book of the covenant. We just call it the Old Testament, the Pentateuch the five books of Moses, but he calls it the book of the covenant, the book of the contract, the book of curses and blessings, the book of here's what God will do, here's what I will do, and if I do what God says I will do, the blessings are mine. If I refuse to do what God says I will do, then the curses come to me, the book of the covenant. Almost all covenants in Scripture are if-then covenants. They're covenants that God makes with us, and we have a responsibility. There's a few covenants which are just one way. It's like when God took Abraham up and, and built this altar and made him go to sleep and then pass between the altar like this with this smoking pot and basically said, I will bless you. And it wasn't contingent upon anything Abraham did. It was just a covenant God made with Abraham. There's very few of those in Scripture. Most of them is, I will do this if you do this. And if you don't do this, I will do this. We do it the same thing with our children, with our employees, with the people that we know. Hey, I need you to, uh, I need you to go ahead and clean this warehouse up. 
and uh, I need to get done by five o'clock today. The guy doesn't do it, we fire him. He doesn't get paid. It's a covenant. It's a contract. You know, with our kids, you want an allowance? Here's what you need to do. I need my allowance, Dad. Did you do what I told you to do? No, but you owe me the allowance anyway because you said you give it to me. No, it's a covenant. It's a contract. It's an if-then promise, something that we have a tendency of not really viewing God that day. Everybody's standing, and the king is reading the five books of Moses, probably emphasizing very prominently Deuteronomy 28 to 30. Then, verse 3, the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord. I read the book of the covenant. I found out that my life was less than it should be what God expected of me. So therefore, I'm going to make a covenant before the Lord now that I know his word. And my covenant is this. I will follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statute. And I will do it not haphazardly like the church does today, but I will do it with all my heart and with all my soul. And it's not just following it eternally because a covenant implies action. And I will perform the words of this covenant that are written in the book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. All the people said, yes, we're with you. Everybody wants a leader to go before them. If you look at 2 Chronicles, you get a picture of the same event, only there's a few things added in here that gives a little more um, explanation to how this took place. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, it says, Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. This is now our standard. I was doing it in my own, and I was doing well, I thought, until I saw a standard, and I realized, oh my gosh, he's an exacting God. I want to follow him explicitly. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord, a promise, a vow, if you've been reading Ecclesiastes, you will see the Lord says, don't be hasty in making vows. But he made a vow. And his vow was to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, everything in him, with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in his book, because a covenant means action. A covenant is not something just mental. God, I just want to serve you with my whole heart, but don't expect me to do anything. God, I want to hide your word in my heart so I won't sin against you, but I'm not going to read it. God, I want to, I want to make you first in my life, and yet everything else in my life still remains first. That's a hypocrite. It's not what he did here. And he made. Oh, in 2 Kings, it almost seems like it's voluntary, but here, no, no. I'm making you. I'm king. I'm exercising my authority. I'm head of my household. I have a wife and I have children that I've let kind of just slip away. But for, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So I'm gathering them all together. And I'm saying from this moment on, things change in this family. And he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. 
And then it goes on to talk about in chapter 35 this incredible Passover that he had in order to uh, um, please the Lord the best he could. So I'm looking for the two summary verses in Kings and Chronicles that summarize his life. And here's one. This is 2 Chronicles 34, verse 33. It's the last verse in this chapter. And here's what it says about Josiah. Sums up his life. Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel. Oh yeah, there was an action involved in that. And in doing that, he irritated so many people. I mean, you can't have that anymore. You can't do that anymore. You can't watch that on TV anymore. That's something that doesn't glorify me. I don't care what rights you think you have. The fact is, I am king. We're serving God. This is the way it is. Well, I can't stand that. The stand that you're making, it doesn't matter. I'm taking it upon myself to serve the Lord. We're all going to serve the Lord. Everybody under my authority, at least by their actions, are going to do what's right because I have a responsibility to answer to God. He removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel, their abominations, and he made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. All his days they, the children of Israel, did not depart from following the Lord their God of the fathers. Now when he died, they immediately went back to the way they were. It's like that way in Israel. You have one godly king, and while he's king, everything goes well, and God blesses, and as soon as he's no longer king, all of a sudden the people gravitated back towards their sinful ways, pretty much like our culture. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. In 2 Kings, you have a summary verse, which says this, Now before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord, not just haphazardly, but with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. Have you ever done anything with all your soul and heart and might? Do we even know what that means? Well, an Olympic athlete, uh, they do things like with all their heart, soul, and might, and so therefore they qualify for the Olympics and they get a gold medal, and we admire their commitment to something that passes to something that doesn't really matter, that is here today and we forget him tomorrow. But our relationship with the Lord, all his heart, all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. This is kind of what's happened to me. Um, I see God's word totally different, and it is liberating. You may find it oppressive if you're used to God being just a good old boy and a good old buddy, but it's not. It's absolutely liberating. A lot of the lessons that I've been sharing with you for the last year talking about the qualifiers, the qualifiers, and the qualifiers part of a covenant. You know, when God's word says that, you know, if we diligently seek him, that there's a promise that we get, that promise is given to us not for seeking him, but for diligently seeking him. You know, I will uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. I mean, the, all your heart unlocks the promise. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And, and that's why most of my church experience has been just lipping around, licking around the edge of the cup 
of the big blessings of God and never being able to jump into the center of them because I refused to believe the qualifiers. I would ignore those those words, those adjectives and adverbs that basically apply the intensity and the depth of what God expects in his covenant. Think of what he's given to us. Think of who we are in him. So here's the three truths that I feel finally at liberty to share with you. Number one, God's letter is, God's Bible is not a love letter. I mean, to a degree it is, because it talks about how God loves us so much, but what we have done in the New Testament time, in the church time today, is we've dumbed God down to just some buddy, some pal, my friend, that I can take or leave. Now, he wants to sit here and spend time with me, but I don't have time for him. And if I don't have time for him, he's just going to have to deal with it because i got other things in my life. Come on, Jesus, you're just, you know, you're, 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 you're nagging, you're clinging, you're, I mean, get a life. And, and it can't all be about you spending time with me. Go do something else for a while. i got things i got to do, and we're okay with that. Because after all, God's word is a love letter. A love letter is not authoritative. A love letter is, I love you this much, and let me tell you why. And we sit back and go, ah, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Makes me feel kind of warm and fuzzy. How much do you love me, Jesus? I love you this much. You can do anything you want. Just just spend a little time with me. Just make make me feel complete because you're with me. No, it's not what Justice read today. What he read today is, I am complete in him. It's not a love letter. It's a contract. It's a covenant. I mean, when God first revealed himself to to Abraham, it's a covenant. To Moses, it's a covenant. To the church, it's a covenant. And a covenant means I will do this and you will do this. If you don't do this, I will not do this. But I love you so much that I want you to do this, that if you refuse to do that, I will chastise you, I will punish you, I will bring you into submission because nobody in a family wants to have an erring child going out and hanging around with the wrong people doing terrible things. So you're saying that God is like a mean God. No, he's the ultimate loving God. But he's just as loving, if not more loving, than you are with your children. I mean, if you don't punish your child for disobeying you, you create a monster. Do you not? Oh, we don't believe in spanking. We believe in sad looks and time out. You have hurt my feelings. Oh, yeah, that works for a three-year-old, doesn't it? I mean, come on. It's, I mean, kids know they're loved because of the sacrifices parents make to punish them, to chastise them, to, to bring them into the fold. You don't think God does the same thing for us? It's a contract. You read it like a contract. Here's what the scripture says. I see these qualifiers. And the good news about that is, is I can meet them all. I can, I can, all these promises can be mine. What God is waiting on is me to meet the requirements, the diligently, the with all my heart and all my soul. And I mean, that's what he demands from us because that's what Christ gave us is all of himself. And yet we give him very little of us, very little. I can tell that in my own life, and I can tell that in your life, and I can tell that in the life of the church, by how much time we spend with him. Hey, uh, has anybody want to share anything about what God has done in your life this week? 
So what does that mean? That means that either well, I don't feel like uh, I don't I don't feel like saying anything. Okay, so you have an opportunity to glorify God, but you don't feel like saying anything. So it must be all about you, or. Maybe God didn't do anything crazy this week or show you anything in his word or nothing. How is that possible? I mean, how is that possible when we're feasting on his word, which is applied to us by the Holy Spirit, which is God-breathed, which, you know, is like a two-edged sword, and he wants to speak to us this way, and if we spend any time at all in it, he will. Or maybe he, I did read it, but I was too busy thinking about other things I want to do, and I don't have time for that. And, and he always gets put, put on the back burner. It, it's true in my life, it's probably true in your life, that if we make a commitment to God to get up and spend a half hour with him, we normally wake up at 7, and we want to spend time with the Lord. In order to get to work on time, we have to be up at 7. So we're going to get up at 6.30 to spend time with him. But hey, the football game went late the night before, and our alarm went off at 6.30, and we're so tired, we just hit it to 7 o'clock because we're going to cut God's time out. And when we wake up at 7, we have a choice. We, comm- we, we fulfill our commitment to God that we made and we're a half hour late for work because we were just too lazy to get up or we push God to the curb because getting at work is far more important to us. Honestly, how many of us would show up late to work? Exactly. Me too. Me too. Because, oh, God, will my boss will be mad, but God won't because he just loves me this much. And he's okay with what I give him. It is a contract. A contract. I mean, even the salvation verses in Romans 10 is a contract. If you confess the Lord Jesus, if you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, that's your part of the contract. Well, God, if I do that, what's your part of the contract? Then you will be saved. Every single bit of it is a contract and a covenant that he makes with us of immense blessings if we simply put him first. Number two, and here's the hard one. It's something called the fear of the Lord. Oh, yeah, the fear of the Lord. Um, You know, the fear of the Lord, I I don't like that word fear, so we're going to change it to awe and reverence and supreme devotion. Is that what it means? No, but that's kind of, that's how I kind of view it, the fear of the Lord. Because I don't want to be afraid of God. If I'm afraid of God, it's like being afraid of an abusive dad who comes home drunk and the little kids cower up under the kitchen table. And that's not God because he loves me this much, allows me to do anything I want. So, so when you talk about the fear of the Lord, I in my mind have twisted that to mean something other than what the word means. This is exactly what the Hebrew word means. It means fear, dread, terror. It means to be afraid, frightened, petrified, but somehow we view that as a positive quality. Because in all the Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so it must be something not this, because in our life, this isn't a positive quality, so we're going to add a positive quality to that and say it really means profound respect, reverence, and awe, which none of us hardly ever give him anyway. Certainly, it doesn't mean what the word says, 
because in our culture we reject that, it must mean something else. So therefore, when I read a passage about the fear of the Lord, oh, it doesn't mean I'm to be afraid of him if I mess up or afraid of him if I go my own way. Instead, it means, um, you know, I'm just supposed to have like deep awe for him. And if I don't, it's okay. It's no big deal. I just will forfeit those promises. Well, I don't like the fact that um, you're saying that the word fear means fear. Well, it's not translated reverence. It's not translated awe. It's not translated profound respect. You can actually go through and look at the Hebrew words and even the Greek words, and none of them are translated that way. We just have interpreted them that way because it makes it easier in, in lukewarmness to be able to accept it. Lord, if this is true, I need a passage. Well, how about all the Proverbs? No, no, I want a New Testament passage. Matter of fact, I want a New Testament passage. I want Jesus to confirm fear means fear. Okay? How about this passage? Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. What, do not have profound respect for someone that can kill you? Do not have awe over someone who's got a knife and wants to slit your throat? No, that fear is fear, dread, petrified, terrified. But rather fear, same word, God. Why? Because he's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But do not have profound respect and awe over those people that can kill you, but have profound and respect and awe for God. Makes no sense at all, does it? Because we've twisted it to make it easy for us to accept. Same account is found in Luke. This one's even scarier. Look what it says in Luke. Jesus speaking, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid. That's that word fear. But now it's a little bit more clear. Our English translators don't put fear there because, you know, we may confuse it. Now it's afraid. Afraid is not profound respect. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more that they can do, but I will show you whom you should fear. I shall show you whom you should be afraid of. Fear him after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him! Exclamation point. Wow, so, so I, I can't really view you as just like my homeboy, like my good old buddy, wear like offensive t-shirts that kind of talk about Jesus, but not really talk about Jesus, and there's some commercial on there, some cigarette ad that they turned it around, so Marlboro now means Jesus, and I guess that's okay. What? This is God of the universe, that I'm, I can't take you as, you know, like, like just adding you, seasoning my life, letting me do what I want to do, that when it talks about me being a slave and a bond slave and a servant and a doulos to you, that it really doesn't mean that. It's like I've voluntarily joined your club and maybe I'll pay it, uh, dues and maybe I won't and maybe I'll show up to meetings and maybe I won't, but God, you're lucky to have me. Yeah. Not the way it really is in Scripture. It's the way we live. It's the way we assume. But it's not what the Scripture says. So what happens if I do fear him? Now, there's some promises. If I fear him, then, man, I, I ain't going to mess up at all. I, um, I may have showed, shared this story with you before. I know I did a number of years ago. But the uh, scaredest I ever got was when... Um, 
I was working as a CPA and it was a, it was Tarpley and Underwood. There were two partners in the firm. There was the older partner, older, probably 40, um, the older partner. And then it was a young partner who was 32, just half a dozen years older than I was. And he was kind of, he was the whiz behind it. And the other guy just had all the contacts and, and I went in to, uh, uh, I went in to get my annual review from the senior partner, uh, Tarpley, and it didn't go the way I wanted, and I got blamed for something that really wasn't my fault, that it was actually my reviewer's fault. We went over on it. You can probably, rec- you can probably relate to this. It went over the budget, but it didn't go over the budget because my work papers weren't done right, according to me. It went over the budget because the reviewer just was slow. And so... I complained a little bit about that to the senior partner, and the senior partner says it doesn't really matter. And so my raise was not what I thought it would be. So I went to the junior partner and complained. Hey, man, dude, because we're friends, we're buddies. You know, hey, can't believe this is happening. And, you know, here's what happened here. And, and I just, I dissed on his partner, thinking that my relationship with him was greater than his partner's. Next thing I know, I'm standing before the senior partner, who the junior partner just reported that to. And I remember him looking at me going, I'm not sure that you can work here anymore. And I'm, I, oh my gosh, did I, I was flippant. I, I messed up. I thought there was no big deal, but I was undermining the senior partner's authority with his junior partner. I was an expendable pawn in this game that was much bigger than me. And I felt fear and dread. You know what I mean? Never feel that towards God. Why? But I would do it for him. It did work out okay after I groveled a while. But, uh, and I learned a big lesson. But uh, the fact is that the fear of the Lord, having that relationship, I don't want to be, I don't want to stand before God and find my accounts lacking. I don't want to stand before God and have sins portrayed in front of me. I don't want to stand before God and him say, what have you done with the spirit I gave you and have nothing to say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Very important to have knowledge, and I'll show you in a few minutes. But fools, fools, most believers today despise wisdom and instruction. I don't have time for that. I'm too busy making my own life. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, not embrace evil, not participate in evil, not laugh about evil, to be brokenhearted and hate evil. And not only that, but to hate pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. The fear of the Lord is to hate the things he hates. This is just from Proverbs, and it's not even all of them. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. How do I get that knowledge of the Holy One? You spend time with him. You respect him. You keep your end of the covenant with him. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, and because it's such a fountain of life, it keeps you from sin, which leads to death. Your relationship with God is so incredible. Your fear of him is so incredible that uh, and you don't want to do anything to offend God who gives you all. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Every one of the sins that we commit, voluntarily commit, because we don't think it's any big deal, would totally evaporate if we had a fear of God. A fear of God. I don't want to do that to God. I mean, good night. There's going to be someday I'm going to answer for that. It's just a temple pleasure that's just here for a moment and now gone. And Man, I just, I don't want to do that. I'm scared to do that. 
Don't let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous, not of the love of God, but the fear of God all day long, all the day. We have a love letter. Now we have this fear of the Lord, and here's the final one. And this is the one that I don't know how to communicate with you um, the importance of. I, I don't. I tried, and sometimes I get really frustrated. Sometimes I told Karen, I, said, I just need to go sell cars. You know, I mean, it's just I don't know how to communicate it to you with everything that needs to be said. And it's simply this. It's time to be a doer and not a hearer of his word. To be a doer. To do what it says. Hearing means nothing. Great sermon, preacher. I know, but it didn't change anybody's life. I know, but great sermon. How, why was it a great sermon? I don't know. I learned something I didn't know before, but it, it's, it's trapped up in my head, and I'm never going to let it filter down to my heart and my soul where it's going to change anything. No way I'm going to conform my life to his word, but hey, it was a great message, preacher. And uh, I learned a lot. I can't wait to come back next week and learn something else. It's not about that. It's about a changed life. Here's what his word says. Here's my life. Do I, do I try to discount his word or do I take my life and conform it to his word? And if I do conform it to his word, it may cost me relationships. It may cost me money. It may cost me friends and neighbors. It's going to cost me a lot of stuff but I'd rather hear well done, good and faithful servant than, hey, come over to my party tonight. Or maybe I wouldn't. All depends on where we're at. James talks about being a doer of the world word, and he talks about it regarding sanctification, regarding holiness. And here's what he said. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. That's people we know, things we do, Thoughts we think, things we watch on television, music we listen to, relationships that we have, all of it. If it's not holy and righteous like God, we're not to be connected to it. Bad company corrupts good character. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with humility and meekness the implanted word. I'm going to take God's word and put it in my heart, which is able to save your souls. Be it but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So if I'm, a, if I'm a, a hearer of the word and not a doer, what am I deceiving myself about? The same thing you're deceiving yourself about if you say you have fellowship with the light and walk in darkness, you lie. What do I lie about? Walking in darkness? Everybody knows you walk in darkness. You lie by saying you have fellowship with the light. It continues. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. I'm supposed to be this kind of man, but I always revert back to my old kind of man. Am I a believer or am I just a carnal man? Am I somebody who loves the Lord with all their heart or do I love me and what I want with all my heart? Who am I? And here's the promise. But if, this is the if-then promise, but if he who looks at the perfect law of liberty, I want to know exactly what you say, God, and continue in it. Oh, it's one thing to know what it says. It's another thing to stay focused on what you say. 
and is not a forgetful hearer. I, I know God, but that was church on Sunday. This is Wednesday night, at, Wednesday at work, and I have to make these tough decisions. And it, it, I know it's kind of dishonest, but it'll make me some money. And not what we're talking about here. And not only that, but a doer of the work. It doesn't say doer of the word. It makes it very specific. Doer of the things of the word, the work. Then that one will be blessed in what he does. Like Psalm 1, completely blessed in everything. So, Lord, um, how do you want me to sum this up? The same way I summed it up for you, Steve. Don't expect anyone to join you. Don't expect anyone to rally around you. Husbands, don't expect your wives to, to buy into this if you decide to take a stand for Christ. Wives, don't expect your husbands to. They're just going off on some strange tangent. Children, don't expect the encouragement from your parents because it may not happen. And if you're waiting on someone else to join you, don't. Every one of us will stand alone at the judgment seat of Christ. It's not me and Karen. It's Karen and me. I will give an account for my life. She will give an account for her life. And I'm waiting on her to join me. Mostly it's waiting on me to join her. But if I'm, if I'm doing that, then that's not the way it works. It just takes one person, one person to turn the world upside down. And that world may be your family. That world may be your friends. That world may be our county, our city, our nation. One person. I want to close with this last verse in Proverbs 28.2. Because of the transgressions of a land, many are its princes, many are its rulers, many are the corrupt system that's going on, perpetuating this corruption. It can be in your family. When my kids were little, they just loved Jesus. And when they got older, now they don't want nothing to do with Jesus. It's not the kid's fault. It's not. It's usually the parent's fault. Because when they were young, they loved me reading Bible stories to them. But when they're old, they rolled their eyes when I read them. So I quit reading. I dropped the ball. I didn't care anymore because it was more important for my kids to like me than it is for me to be faithful to him. Because of the transgressions of a land, many are its princes. But by a man, one man, one man in Scripture is a majority. We find one Megiddian does incredible things. All the heroes of uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're singular people. It's not a group of them. Singular people. The only time that Jesus had his group together and he was going to go in and do something is when all his disciples were with him and they were going to go in and upturn the tables of the money changers. Do you remember that? And he specifically told them, no, I will do this. And he went in on his own without them who were there with him to do that. Because of the transgressions of a land, many are its princes. But by a man, a singular man of understanding and knowledge, which only comes from intimate time with him and his word, right will be prolonged. Faithfulness in your family will be prolonged. Maybe like Josiah, prolonged through your whole life. Maybe, I mean, if you read the rest of the story, you'll find that after Josiah died, calamity came because God's true to his word. But maybe, maybe you can be the one to hold back the onslaught of pain and suffering coming on your family or a nation by being a man of understanding if you're willing to pay the price. 
And the phrase I always use is, what are you prepared to do about it? Do you know where that comes from? In our family, we have movie quotes. We watch a movie and the movie, you know, got a, a quote during the movie kind of connects with us and we're having a conversation with someone. We just throw the movie quote out and everybody knows what we're talking about. This movie quote is from the movie called The Untouchables, which is an old 80s movie with Kevin Costner and and uh, it was about Al Capone and all that kind of stuff. This particular scene was where this beat cop, one of the stars of the show, uh, had the answer to how to bring down Capone. And he was waiting on Kevin Costner and the guys to come so we can give that information to him. And in the meantime, they got to him and they shot him up pretty bad. And uh, he dragged himself into the bedroom. He's covered with blood. He's about to die. He's just holding on to life until Kevin Costner comes. Can't believe they've done this to you. And uh, he just reaches over and he grabs this sheet of paper, which was the train schedule, and kept pointing to it. And, you know, and this, this, is, this is where he's at. And Kevin Costner goes, so, so that's where he's at. That's where the bookkeeper's going to be. He's going to be on that train. We can arrest him there. And he grabbed Kevin Costner with his dying breath, covered with blood, and says, what are you prepared to do about it? I can't imagine with a man ready to die, hanging on the life just to give me that information, me or Kevin Costner saying, nah, not much. I've got a lunch date during that time, so we'll have to catch him another time. And Jesus reaches from the cross, and he grabs us with his bloody hands, and he pulls us to him in his dying breath and says, you know, I have died to forgive you of your sins, to give you a blank slate. The Holy Spirit is going to come to inhabit you, to keep you from sin. What are you prepared to do about it? And our response is, not much. You know, I'll give you like, I don't know, 20 minutes a week. Uh, I'm, I'm too busy doing some of the stuff I got to do. I got, I got things to do and gardens to take care of and I got work and not much Jesus. We would never do that to him. Kevin Costner in that movie would have never done that to Malone was his name. But yet we do it to God all the time. We do it to our children all the time. We do it to our friends and neighbors who are looking for someone to at least emulate what Jesus is supposed to be all the time. Because we don't have a fear of God and we don't look at his word as a contract, what I need to do to be well-pleasing to him. And if we did, everything would change. Everything would change. I don't know how to implore you any more than just beg you that the key to the intimate life with Christ is to present yourself a living sacrifice, which means you are dead. You know, sacrifices have no feelings, but you're, but you're not dying for him physically. You're living for him, but you've sacrificed your life for him. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Well, I can't, God, because I've had so many sins in my life. Holy. Okay. Yeah, you, where it does say holy. Yeah, but you, you don't understand the depth of my sin. Acceptable. You do accept me like I am. Unto God, which is the reasonable, logical thing you should do based on what he's done for you. Well, what happens when I do that, God? Simply, you no longer be conformed to this world but you be transformed by the new renewing of your mind. And when you do, the promise is, by the way, that's a contract. That's what we do. Here's the promise. You'll be able to prove what is the perfect will of God for your life. The perfect will of God for your life. Let me encourage you that while we still can to make that the priority of your life. Amen?
It is not a love letter specifically. It is a contract and a covenant. The fear of the God means just that, fear. And it's time to quit being a hearer of the word and start getting busy doing the things he's called us to do while we still can. Amen? Let me pray.